Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. So, let me remind you, you are listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Alright, so we're going to start off, unfortunately, with a couple of obituaries here. And uh, we start off with this one from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, May 3rd, 2023. Maxine Rogo, December 17, 1930 to April 30, 2023, author unknown. The world has lost yet another royal monarch. Early in the morning of April 30, 2023, Maxine Inigo Rogo passed away peacefully in her home in Millbrae, California, while in the loving company of family. She was 92. While she was a lifelong admirer of Elizabeth II, Maxine wasn't handed a title through blood. She earned it all on her own. To capture her life in a single obituary is a futile effort, but we will try. Maxine came from humble beginnings. She was born Maximina Inego on December 17, 1930 in Reseda, California, to Pauline Oneta and Juan Inego as the fifth of nine children. Maxine entered this world with an indistinguishable thirst for knowledge on which she anchored her entire life. Raised in San Diego, the moment she turned 18, she headed to Los Angeles to expand her cultural palate sleeping on her sister's couch while working full-time at an insurance firm and putting herself through school at L.A. City College. Ruthlessly uh, focused and driven, Maxine was only de decelerated temporarily by the incessant courtship from her future husband, Morton Rogo. Mort, who passed away in, in 2009, was so enthralled, in love, and in awe of Maxine that once he laid his eyes on her, he could not live without her, and he never did. For his entire life, he was devo uh, her devoted husband, business partner, travel companion, tennis double, and champion. Maxine and Mort were married on November 30, 1950. While the more common practice at the time was to ask your wife to tend to the children full-time, Mort knew that Maxine cra uh, craved more. Ultimately, she was the one that gave him the permission and confidence to quit his job and start Mortar Morton Machinery which they ran together for over 40 years. While the company was named after Mort, all who knew them were well aware that Maxine was the captain of the ship. However, very few knew that Maxine was also a stock market mastermind, deeply researching emerging economic trends and unafraid to take risks, which led to financial comfort for her family, including travel to over 60 countries. It's important to note that Maxine did not travel for the glamour of it, she traveled for her lifelong love of learning. In her 20s, Maxine gave birth to her two children, Mark in 1953 and then Shari in 1956. She was known as the Warden, raising them strictly to study hard, work for what they desired, and wake up early every single day, always telling them, you can sleep when you're dead. In her 30s, she built Maxine's castle, a 5,600-square-foot home that was highlighted in architectural magazines, built to host her extended family and entertain large groups of friends. She and Mort were always known for their love of the party. In her 40s, she enrolled in courses at L.A. City College so that she and her best friend Luz could play, 
uh, for the tennis team. They ended up earning the number one and number two spots among the players. In her 50s, determined to get an authentic cultural experience, she organized numerous global adventures with Mort to countries that were not as tourist-friendly as they are today. While in Africa, a local tribe threatened to kidnap her. She was saved by Mort offering his brand new camera, but that didn't stop her. Nothing ever did. In her 60s, she and a friend went to Paris for six months, took a semester of French, enjoyed cooking classes, and immersed themselves in Parisian culture. In her 70s, she went to hike the Himalayas, despite getting very ill and upsetting her entire family. This again did not stop her. In her 80s, she took her grandchildren on a two-week cruise down the Danube River from Budapest to Bucharest, instructing them to appreciate the architecture, history, and culture in addition to the food and beauty. And in her 90s, she beat COVID-19. Maxine truly did it all, but not just for herself. She was incredibly charitable. A key pillar for Maxine and her household was to give to others who were less fortunate. After discovering and embracing Judaism through Mort's family, she was active in Jewish charities and frequently volunteered at her synagogues. She and Mort also are very passionate about raising money for just causes, especially City of Hope, the Anti-Defamation League, Orthopedic Hospital, and multiple major Democratic presidential campaigns. In the last 40 years, Maxine's royal title changed to Nana. She was not to be mistook for a stereotypical grandma and wanted that to be clear. She pushed her grandchildren to not worry about her and always live their best life, uh, lives, their best lives through travel and education. She and Papa made sure that there were no financial hurdles for the grandchildren's higher education as per her frequent motto, life is a living, learning thing. In her 92 years, Nana seized every single day with tenacity, generosity, and strength. Once you meet her, she was impossible to forget. Maxine lives on, lived on her own terms, and she died on her own terms. May her memory be a blessing to all. Maxine is survived by her son Mark Rogo and wife Lynn, daughter Sherry Caruthers, and husband John, grandchildren Lisa Rogo Gupta and husband Anil Gupta, Marcy Rogo and husband Patrick Friedman Schaefer, Rachel Caruthers, Matthew Caruthers, great-grandchildren Kira and Sonia Gupta, and a beloved Shih Tzu, Shana. A celebration of life will be held on Thursday, May 4th at 2 p.m. at Hillside Memorial Park at 6001 West Sentinella Avenue in Los Angeles. In lieu of flowers, the family requests donations be made to the Malala Fund, malala.org, so that Maxine may continue to inspire future generations of strong, trailblazing women. That was Maxine Rogo, December 17, 1930 to April 30, 2023, author unknown from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, May 3rd, 2023. We have one more here from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, May 7th, 2023. Arlene Rose Rosenblatt, September 4, 1934 to April 22nd, 2023. Author unknown. Arlene showed us all what it's meant to be a mentor, a mother, a grandmother, and a matriarch. Born in Los Angeles, Rose Arlene Aronson, her life was transformed when she met her beloved Sid when they were 14. 
After 40 years of teaching and having a transformative impact on her students' lives, she retired and moved to Santa Monica. She was active across her beloved temples, Beth Hillel, Makom Or Shalom, Westside Havarah, and Ahavat Torah. Eileen's legacy of compassion, dedication, selflessness, inclusion, and infectious laughter will forever inspire all those fortunate enough to have known her. She will be dearly missed by her three children, Julie, Ron, Mark, and their spouses, David, Barry, and Sarah, her grandchildren, Judd, Bex, Tom, Jake, Eli, Mira, Bela, and great-grandchildren, Ryder, Jax, Brooklyn, Trent, and Leo. Memorial service will be held at Temple Beth Hillel in Valley Village on May 8th at 5 o'clock. Donations in Arlene's memory may be made to the ACLU.org or WINEP. That was Arlene Rose Rosenblatt, September 4th, 1934 to April 22nd, 2023. Author unknown from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, May 7, 2023. All right, we have a couple of of um, Israel stories here. This first one is from the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, May 2nd, 2023. McCarthy addresses Knesset amid fraught ties. Republican gets honor of speaking in, in Israel's parliament and what some see as a dig at President Biden by Elon Ben-Zion and Tia Goldenberg. Jerusalem. The U.S. House Speaker addressed Israel's parliament on Monday, a rare honor awarded to the highest-ranking Republican in American politics at a time of fraught relations between Israel's government and President Biden, a Democrat. Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu portrayed the speech as a nod to bipartisan U.S. support for Israel as it marks 75 years since its creation. Critics say the platform given to McCarthy is the only he's only the second House Speaker to address the Knesset after Newt Gingrich in 1998 is a pointed jab at Biden. McCarthy, Republican of Bakersfield, spoke to the Knesset, greeted by frequent applause and a standing ovation as lawmakers returned from a month-long recess. They are expected to resume the fight over a contentious plan promoted by the most right-wing government in Israel's history to overhaul the judiciary. The plan has split Israelis and drawn a rare public rebuke from Biden. Amid the tensions, Biden has so far denied Netanyahu a typically customary invitation to the White House after his election win late last year. In a challenge to Biden, McCarthy said Monday that he expects the White House to invite the Prime Minister over for a meeting, especially with the 75th anniversary of Israel's independence. He said he would invite Netanyahu to speak to Congress if Biden doesn't. McCarthy's visit to Israel was another sign of gradu uh, gradual transformation of Israel from a bipartisan matter into a wedge issue in U.S. politics. The trend goes back more than a decade when Netanyahu began openly siding with Republicans against Democrats. At the same time, some younger progressive Democrats have become increasingly critical of Israeli policies, including the treatment of Palestinians. McCarthy addressed the Knesset at a time when both Republicans and Democrats are stealing uh, for presidential nomination races. Republicans are seeking to present themselves to voters, especially to evangelical Christians, as the best ally to Israel. McCarthy and Netanyahu met before the Knesset addressed and the Republican lavished praise on the Prime Minister, saying his leadership, character, and courage inspire Americans. 
that California said the U.S. cherishes its unbreakable bond with Israel, pledged continued funding for security assistance, and said that countries must remain resolute in our commitment that Iran will never acquire a nuclear weapon. In Washington, White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby sidestepped questions about McCarthy's suggestion that he could invite Netanyahu to speak to Congress separate uh, of a White House visit. Kirby said that he expected Netanyahu would visit the White House at some point, but said no visit was planned at the moment. I think we've seen Speaker McCarthy's comments and will let him speak to those, uh, those comments and whatever his intentions are, Kirby said. What I can speak to is the long-standing, unwavering support President Biden has already provided over, uh, to the people in Israel over many, many decades of public service. Before the parliament recess, Netanyahu has paused, had paused judicial overhaul plans under intense pressure, which has included large week, weekly protests, a labor strike, and threatened threats by military reservists to stop showing up for duty. Biden waded into the criticism, saying Netanyahu cannot continue down this road. While Netanyahu and Biden have known each other for decades, their, their relationship has soured since the prime minister returned to office late last year. The Biden administration has voiced unease about Netanyahu's government, made up of ultranationalists who were once on the fringes of Israeli politics and now hold senior positions dealing with the Palestinians and other sensitive issues. Over the years, Netanyahu, a lifelong conservative with American-accented English and deep ties to the U.S., hasn't hidden his Republican leanings even as he's spoken of the importance of keeping Israel a bipartisan issue. In 2015, he delivered a speech to Congress against the Iran nuclear deal that was widely seen as a slight against the Obama administration which negotiated the agreement. He was accused of backing Republican Mitt Romney's candidacy for president and was one of President Trump's closest international supporters. That Republican tilt has tested ties with American Jews, most of whom lean Democratic. Eitan Gilboa, an expert on U.S.-Israel relations, said that there's been serious damage to Israel's ties to Washington and that Netanyahu broke the bipartisanship surrounding Israel. The McCarthy visit, he said, was a way for both Republicans and Netanyahu to stick it to Biden. Netanyahu thinks that if McCarthy visits here, it will put pressure on the White House to invite him, Gilboa said. Republicans are fighting over who's the greatest supporter of Israel. The White House snub is another sore point for the embattled prime minister, whose legal plan has set off one of Israel's worst domestic crises, sent his Likud party tanking in public opinion polls, and tarnished the 75-year-old leader's legacy. The parliamentary break has allowed Israelis to take stock of the tensions set off by the legal plan, who had been, which had been proceeding at a feverish pace in the previous session and had reached a boiling point after Netanyahu dismissed his dissenting defense minister. The future of the plan is unclear. Netanyahu said he was temporarily suspending the drive to change Israel's judicial system to allow the coalition and opposition to come to a negotiated compromise. But the talks don't appear to have produced many agreements, and Netanyahu's allies are pushing him to move ahead if the negotiations fail. He's also facing pressure from the streets. Tens of thousands of people who support the overhaul filled the, er uh, the area near Parliament 
on Thursday as a show of force, of force in favor of the legal changes. Protests against the overhaul have continued for 17 weeks, including during the parliament recess, with as much intensity. Netanyahu is expected to keep a focus on less divisive issues in the coming weeks, such as passing a budget at a time when Israel's economy is on shaky ground and inflation is rising. But he will face hurdles. He is up against a court-ordered deadline in July, which requires the government to legislate a military draft law about the near-blanket exemptions enjoyed by members of Israel's ultra-Orthodox community. Instead of serving in the country's compulsory military, like the majority of secular Jews, ultra-Orthodox men are allowed to study religious texts. Experts say the system keeps the growing community cloistered and does not encourage its in integration into the workforce, something seen as necessary to safeguard the future of Israel's economy. Netanyahu, who was on trial for corruption, and his al allies say the overhaul is necessary to rein in an interventionist legal system that has taken power away from elected politicians. They want to weaken the Supreme Court, give the government control over what be who becomes a judge, and reduce judicial oversight on legislation. Critics say that changes will upheld Israel's fragile uh, system of checks and balances and imperil the country's democratic foundations. That was McCarthy addresses Knesset amid fraught ties by Elon Ben Zion and Tia Goldenberg from the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, May 2nd, 2023. Ben Zion and Goldenberg write for the Associated Press. All right, now here's one more Israel article from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, May 5th, 2023. McCarthy's Dangerous Invitation to Netanyahu. Critics see harm in the U.S. Speaker courting support from the Israeli Prime Minister who faces corruption trial by Tracy Wilkinson. Washington. When an invitation... When is an invitation not just an invitation, but a defiant breach of protocol, a brash partisan move, and a self-interested political tactic? When House Speaker Kevin McCarthy travels overseas to invite an embattled, highly unpopular world leader to Washington to address Congress over the reservations of the White House, criti critics argue. The Bakersfield Republican led a delegation to Israel this week where he lavished praise on Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and became only the second U.S. Speak House Speaker to deliver an address to Knesset, Israel's parliament, following Newt Gingrich in 1998. Netanyahu, Israel's longest-serving Prime Minister, is on trial for corruption and has embarked on plans to change his country's judiciary and other institutions in ways many Israelis say will permanently undermine democracy. His actions have triggered massive protests across the board in Israel, drawing military officers, academics, and ordinary citizens alike. In an in unusual criticism, President Biden has said Netanyahu's efforts risk violating the very values he believes the U.S. and Israel have long shared. Biden has pointedly declined to invite Netanyahu to the White House since the latter's return to power late last year, a rarity for two such close allies. Biden has waited too long to welcome Netanyahu, McCarthy said in Jerusalem. If that doesn't happen, I'll invite the Prime Minister to come uh, meet with the, with the House, he told Netanyahu-friendly newspaper Israel Hayom, founded by Sheldon Adelson, the late American casino magnate and mega-donor to GOP and right-wing Israeli causes. At one point, 
it was taboo for elected U.S. officials to travel overseas and criticize the U.S. US government's foreign policies. It's the never-beyond-the-water's-edge doctrine, say what you will at home, but not in foreign lands. Such diplomatic rules appear to be a thing of the past. McCarthy's invitation to Netanyahu recalls a similar move by Republican lawmakers in 2015, when they brought the Israeli Prime Minister to Washington to address a joint session of Congress. On that trip, Netanyahu pointedly skipped the White House, then occupied by President Obama, with whom relations were frosty. He used his speech to attack one of Obama's key foreign policy initiatives, the international agreement that curtailed Iran's nuclear activities. But several diplomats and analysts said McCarthy's performance is in some ways more egregious. He continues to position the GOP firmly in Netanyahu's ever more controversial camp. Israel was probably first used as a partisan wedge issued during Gingrich's late 1990s tenure. The trend was cemented by former President Trump, who ingratiated himself to Netanyahu and overtly favored Israel in all issues, including its long-standing conflict with the Palestinians. He moved the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem in contravention of decades of understanding that the holy city remained a matter of dispute. The approach was decreed by numerous U.S. and Israeli diplomats and politicians. The strength of U.S. support for Israel has traditionally been rooted in its position as a bipartisan issue. Support never wavered regardless of who sat in the White House or which political party controlled Congress. In his speech to Knesset, McCarthy said he was paying homage to bipartisan, uh, bipartisan support for Israel, but others saw it as the opposite. McCarthy's move shows how partisan Israel has become in U.S. politics with uh, with, uh, with ours as the Israel uh, We Love You Right or Wrong Party. Aaron David Miller, a veteran U.S. diplomat who worked in the Middle East for decades, said on Twitter. It fits ever so nicely into Republican efforts to corner the market on support for Israel and to pay Democrats as best at not committed, Miller continued. It's a natural symbiosis, which is why it's so dangerous. McCarthy was likely trying to cater to, US, uh, to Jewish voters in the U.S., as well as those pro-Israel members of his rebellious GOP base who have tested his tenuous grasp on power. But his calculation is off the mark, according to shifting public opinion. Long-term, reliable U.S. supporters of Israel have increasingly turned against the current Netanyahu government, which is populated with extremist, ultra-Orthodox, and ultra-nationalist politicians. Hundreds of American Jews have held protest rallies outside Israeli diplomatic missions in numerous U.S. cities, while hundreds of thousands of Israelis have been staging regular street demonstrations in Tel Aviv since the start of the year. Alon Pinkas, a political commentator and retired Israeli diplomat, said he doubted McCarthy's outreach to Netanyahu would help land the Prime Minister and Oval Office visit. McCarthy's sycophantic relationship with Trump has rendered him a voodoo doll for the White House and most Democrats, Pinkus wrote in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, which is critical of Netanyahu. His pledge or threat to invite Netanyahu to D.C. if Biden doesn't do so may be the Israeli premier's desperate attempt to get himself to Washington. However, it may well end up being counterproductive, Pinkus said. What it does is further identify Netanyahu solely with the Republican 
Republicans in control and direct in direct conf confrontation with Biden. Asked about McCarthy's Israeli visit, Biden administration officials said that they were aware of the speaker's remarks, but reiterated that no Netanyahu visit to the White House was on the books. Israeli leaders have a long tradition of visiting Washington, National Security Council spokesman John F. Kirby said, noting the years of friendship Biden and Netanyahu have shared. Kirby said he expected a Netanyahu visit at some point, but that the administration would continue frank discussing, discussions with Israel about the judiciary reforms and other actions that could impinge on rights of secular Jews and minorities. At the State Department, where criticisms of Netanyahu's policies have been few but sharp, officials were similarly noncommittal. State Department spokesman Vedant Patel said he would not engage in a hypothetical when asked whether Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken would meet with Netanyahu if he were in town at McCarthy's behest. We obviously remain in close touch with our Israeli partners at all levels, Patel said. Our relationship and our partnership with Israel is deep-rooted. We will continue to engage them, and I don't have any visits or anything to preview. That was McCarthy's Dangerous Invitation to Netanyahu by Tracy Wilkinson from the Nation's section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, May 5th, 2023. And back here at home from the Nation's section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, May 2nd, 2023, Yellen says U.S. could hit the debt ceiling on June 1st. Treasury Secretary warns Congress of risk of default if borrowing authority isn't soon raised or suspended. From the Associated Press. Washington. Treasury Secretary Janet L. Yellen notified Congress on Monday that the U.S. could default on its debt as early as June 1st if legislatures do not raise or suspend the nation's borrowing authority before, the then, before then and avert what could potentially become a global financial crisis. In a letter to House and Senate leaders, Yellen urged Congress to protect the full faith and credit of the United States by acting as soon as possible to address the $31.4 trillion limit on its legal borrowing authority. She added that it is impossible to predict with, certain, with certainty the exact date when the U.S. will run out of cash. We have learned from past debt limit impasses that waiting until the last minute to suspend or increase the debt limit can cause serious harm to business and consumer confidence, raise short-term borrowing costs for taxpayers, and negatively impact the credit rating of the United States, she said in the letter. Also Monday, the Congressional Budget Office reported that it saw a greater risk of the U.S. running out of funds in early June. CBO Director Philip, J Philip L. Swaggle said because of the less-than-expected tax receipts this filing season and a faster IRS having processed already uh, received returns, Treasury's extraordinary measures will be exhausted sooner than we previously projected. In January, Yellen sent a letter to congressional leaders stating that her department had begun at resorting to extraordinary measures to avoid a federal government default. The Treasury said Monday that it plans to increase its borrowing during the April to June quarter of this year, even as the federal government is close to benching the, uh, the debt limit. The U.S. plans to borrow $726 billion during the quarter. 
That's $449 billion more than projected in January due to a lower lower beginning of quarter cash balance and projections of lower than expected income tax receipts and higher spending. With, uh, while Russia's invasion of Ukraine remains a burden on U.S. economic growth, Treasury officials say the debate over the debt ceiling poses the greatest risk to the U.S. financial position. Eric Van Nostrand, Acting Assistant Secretary of Economic Policy, said in a statement that even if Congress ultimately raises uh, the debt limit before a a default occurs, the ensuing uncertainty could raise borrowing costs and induce other financial stress that would weaken our labor market and our standing in the world. There is no time to waste, said Shai Akabas, Director of Economic Policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center, which forecasts the so-called X date when the government exhausts its extraordinary measures. His organization will also provide an updated X date to project in the coming days, he said. The U.S. government is again within mere months or even weeks of failing to make good on all its obligations, he said. That is not a position befitting of a country considered the bedrock of the financial system and only adds uncertainty to an already shaky economy. Democrats and the White House are pushing for Congress to increase the federal debt limit. President Biden wants to cap raised uh, without uh, wants the cap raised without negotiation. The House Republican majority has most recently passed a bill to secure spending cuts in exchange for a debt limit increase. Biden on Monday invited the four congressional leaders to the White House on May 9 to discuss the matter. Yellen said last week at the cap-to-cap policy conference in Washington that Congress must vote to raise or suspend the debt limit and it should do so without conditions and it should not wait until the last minute. I believe that is a basic responsibility of our nation's leaders to get this done. That was Yellen says U.S. could hit the debt ceiling on June 1st from the Associated Press out of the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times Tuesday, May 2nd, 2023. And now more here to our home state. Uh, here's a couple of articles regarding our senior United States Senator. This first one is from the Los Angeles Times, Friday, May 5th, 2023. Feinstein's critics on edge. The Senator's unwillingness to reveal her condition irks transparency advocates. Tell us more, they say. By Melanie Mason, Benjamin Oreskes, and Cameron Joseph. Washington. A handful of activists from the progressive group uh, Indivisible hopped on Zoom this week to directly pose questions to Senator Dianne Feinstein's staff that are swirling the, in the U.S. Capitol and California political circles. Will the Democratic senator, who was diagnosed with shingles in late February and has not been back to Washington since, return to the Senate, they asked, according to a participant on the call. If so, when? Is there a process to determine her timetable or a plan if she cannot return? The answers, or lack thereof, left them unsatisfied. They were lovely people, but they changed the subject, said Patty Crane, who is a member of the Indivisible South Bay LA chapter and attended the meeting. They didn't answer her questions. For years, Feinstein has swatted down growing concerns about her health, assuring constituents largely through statements uh, to the media that she is still able to serve. But with her prolonged absence from the Capitol this spring, pressure is building on the 89-year-old senator 
and her staff to provide additional details about her condition. With Democrats holding a bare-bones majority in the Senate, they need Feinstein's vote to confirm uh, uh, judges, approve Biden cabinet nominees, and potentially avert a debt ceiling default. Senators must be at the Capitol to vote and are not allowed to do so remotely. The predicament has put the stark relief uh, uh, has puts into stark relief the challenge of balancing a lawmaker's privacy against the public's right to know about the health of their representatives. There should be the highest degree of transparency of the senator's medical condition, said Norm Eisen, an ethics official in the Obama White House who now works at the Brookings Institute institution in, riot, in written comments. That accounting, he said, must involve a full medical briefing on her condition and on its prognosis, the best and honest judgment whether she'll be able to return, and if so, when, and for how long she'll be able to work every day. Frankly, it's inexplicable to me that a long-standing public servant and leader like Senator Feinstein would compromise the public interest in this way by withholding that critical information, Eisen said. Feinstein's spokesman, Adam Russell, said the senator has been transparent that her absence from Washington is due to a shingles diagnosis and related complications. After a brief hospitalization in February, Feinstein has been recuperating at home in San Francisco. Last month, Feinstein requested a Democratic member temporarily replace her on the Senate Judiciary Committee to allay concerns about a backlog of judge confirmations, but Republicans blocked that effort. Likely any serious medical condition, like any serious medical condition, shingles does not follow a straight line from diagnosis to recovery, Russell said. She has been unable to provide an exact timeline for her return to Washington because that is contingent upon her doctors advising her that it's safe for her to travel. On Thursday, Feinstein released a statement in response to the criticism that she is impeding the confirmation of judges, pointing out that the Judiciary Committee has approved most of those who have come for, uh, forward during her absence. I'm disappointed that Republicans on the committee are blocking a few from moving forward, Feinstein said. I'm confident that when I return to the Senate, we will be able to move the remaining qualified nominees out of committee quickly and to the Senate floor for a vote. Feinstein's office declined to provide a briefing or written report from her doctor to the Times. Such an independent assessment is crucial in cases of long-term health challenges, said former Senator Barbara Boxer, the California Democrat who served in the Senate with Feinstein for more than 20 years. I, should there be transparency? I say yes. I think it's better for the people who voted for you who put their trust in you, Boxer said. Health has traditionally been a taboo topic in the Senate, where a difference to seniority remains strong. When late Senator Strom Thurmond, a Republican from South Carolina, continued to serve until his late 90s, questions of his fitness and mobility were mostly muted. Colleagues of non-agenarian Senator Robert C. Byrd of West Virginia similarly treat light, tread lightly in speaking about his ailments, including a six-week hospitalization for a staph infection, even as his deteriorating condition was apparent as he was wheeled onto the Senate floor to cast decisive votes to pass the Affordable Care Act in 2009. Lawmakers from both parties suggested the more open speculation about Feinstein's health was motivated by a sexist double standard. 
I've never seen them go after a man who was sick in the Senate that way. Former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Feinstein's fellow San Francisco Democrat, told reporters last week. But others say the scrutiny is a natural byproduct of a, slim, a slimly divided Senate. When Senator Tad Cochran, a Republican from Mississippi, was sidelined for prolonged periods in 2017 and 2018 due to a urinary tract infection and other maladies, his absence made it difficult for his party to cut taxes, a top legislative priority. The issue was compounded when Senator, with Senator John McCain of Arizona being away from the Senate for cancer treatment, leaving Republicans without two crucial votes. Having two senators sick with such a narrow majority in the Senate, it drew a lot more attention than it than than had we had than we had in a, a little more cushion. Had we had a little more cushion, said Brad Smith, Cochran's former chief of staff. The opacity around Feinstein's condition also stands in contrast with information released by Senator John Fetterman's office when he was hospitalized this year for depression. The Pennsylvania Democrat who had been criticized during his campaign last year for not fully disclosing at first the severity of a stroke he suffered on the eve of the primary, was heralded for his uncommon transparency around mental health issues. His staff also released pictures of the senator at various points during his hospitalization at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. In Washington, specific clues about Feinstein's status have been unearthed in unconventional ways. Senate Majority Leader Charles E. Schumer, Democrat of New York, did not answer questions about Feinstein during a news conference Tuesday, but prepared notes he carried to the lectern that were captured in a Politico photo indicating that he had spoken with her recently and expected her to return in the coming days. I spoke with Senator Feinstein yesterday. We are both hopeful she can return next week, read the notes. A Schumer spokesman confirmed to the Times uh, that what was in the notes was accurate. Feinstein's spokesperson said that the two senators spoke on Sunday, but that there was still no, uh, no timeline for her return to the Senate. Most senators who spoke to the Times said they hadn't spoke with Feinstein directly in recent weeks and were getting their information from Schumer. I've heard she's recovering, and I heard she's going to be back soon, so I'm very excited to see her, said Senator Kristen Gillibrand, Democrat of New York. Senator Alex Padilla, Democrat of California, who serves on the Judiciary Committee with Feinstein and began his political career as a member of her staff, said he exchanged messages with her late last week but hadn't connected directly. He said that he knew Feinstein was frustrated that the recovery hasn't happened more quickly. She's eager to get back. I know that, he said. In California, the state's top Democrats, including those running to succeed Feinstein in the Senate, were, were largely circumspect about whether she was sufficiently keeping her constituents informed. Representative Barbara Lee of Oakland, a Senate contender, believes that Senator Feinstein's health should be everyone's primary concern and that she and her family deserve privacy, said her campaign spokeswoman, Katie Murrow. She declined to detail any contact Lee has had with the senator. A spokesperson for Representative Adam B. Schiff of Burbank, another Senate candidate, said his staff has been in touch with the senator's staff, but we don't have anything to share about those conversations at this time. It's up to the senator or her staff to share relevant information with constituents. Campaign officials for Representative Katie Porter of Irvine 
Another Democrat vying for the Senate seat did not respond to questions about transparency, nor did a spokesman for Governor Gavin Newsom. Despite the lack of details, Feinstein's health is frequently a topic of speculation at California political events, said Los Angeles County Democratic Party Chair Mark Gonzalez. People are concerned for her health and also our majority in the Senate, he said. Those concerns prompted Indivisible California, the progressive group who has often clashed with Feinstein, uh, to release an open letter last, uh, last month calling on the senator to resign. This, the letter, signed by 64 local chapters that represent more than 100,000 members, spurred the 40-minute Zoom meeting on Wednesday with Feinstein State Director Peter Mueller, her North Ca uh, Northern California director, Joanne Hayes-White, and her friend and her field representative, Sam Yankovic. During the meeting, Crane and others asked about Schumer's suggestion that Feinstein would be back as soon as next week. Senator Schumer may have more information than I do, but we have not provided any guidance to suggest that she will be back next week other than she wants to be back, Mueller said, according to Crane's recollections and notes from the meeting. Mueller acknowledged the difficulty of the moment while also saying that some of the reporting about Feinstein's absence has been misleading by exaggerating the impact it has had on the Senate Democrats' ability to act on judicial confirmations. Last week, the Senate confirmed seven circuit court judges who had bipartisan support. Crane said that during the Zoom meeting, they were told Feinstein's primary care physician is meeting with her at least once a week. They were also told that Hayes White, who previously was the chief of the San Francisco Fire Department, has been visiting with her regularly. One of the challenges is, uh, is it is a long trip to make that five-hour flight. The number one priority is to recover well enough to make the trip, Hayes White told representatives of Indivisible, according to Crane. The demand for more information may be especially hard for Feinstein, her allies acknowledge, given that more dis, uh, disruption has been afforded to senators in the past. It's very hard for those of us who grew up in a world that had much more privacy, Boxer said. But this is a unique circumstance because of the situation in the U.S. Senate that is so previously and closely divided. That was Fine Sense Critics on Edge by Melanie Mason, Benjamin Oreskes, and Cameron Joseph. From the Los Angeles Times, Friday, May 5th, 2023. Time staff writers Mason and Oreskes reported from Los Angeles. Special correspondent Joseph reported from Washington. All right, here's a follow-up article. From the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, May 5th, 2023. Feinstein not alone in shingles recovery. The painful condition can present chronic issues for some older patients, doctors say. By Melissa Healy. Growing up in San Francisco in the 1930s and 40s, Diane Goldman weathered outbreaks of polio, diphtheria, whooping cough, measles, mumps, and chickenpox. With vaccines for many childhood diseases at least a decade off, scourgers like these claimed more than a fourth of the world's youth before they reached puberty. One of those maladies has caught up with the now 89-year-old, better known as Senator Feinstein, shingles, caused by a virus left behind after a case of chickenpox, threatens to end the storied political career of California's longest-serving senator. In early March, Feinstein announced that she was hospitalized for shingles roughly two weeks after coming down with the painful, blistering rash that heralds the reawakening of the long-dormant 
varicella zoster virus. Fine says Office has offered no further details about the course of her illness or to the extent of her impairment. The senator is known to have had a cardiac pacemaker implanted in 2017. There have been widespread rumors that a decline in her cognitive health has, the, has compromised her ability to fulfill her Senate duties, but neither Feinstein nor her staff has addressed those concerns recently. For now at least, Shingles appears to explain her absence from the Senate. A case of Shingles can visit two weeks of, uh, can visit two weeks of burning agony on a younger patient before it goes away on its own. But in older patients, it's far more likely to last longer and to leave chronic nerve pain in its wake. This is the only, this is the one disease we vaccinate against despite the fact that it doesn't really kill people, said Mayo Clinic geriatrian Dr. Amid A. Shah. The reason is because it can be terribly painful, sometimes for weeks and months. Uh, for some, it never goes away and can be disabling. For anyone who had a bout of chickenpox or varicella as a child, and that means virtually every American uh, now over the age of about 30, the threat of shingles begins to escalate around the mid-century mark. Over a lifetime, an unvaccinated person who once had chickenpox has a roughly one in three chance of developing the painful blistering rash. While the rash most often spreads across one side of the scalp, neck, back, or buttocks, the reactivated varicella zoster virus is capable of worse. In as many as 20% of the cases, the virus can travel up the optic nerve and enter the eye, causing severe eye pain, glaucoma, or vision loss. In rare cases, it can enter the brain, causing inflammation and swelling that can result in stroke-like symptoms. In people with extremely compromised immune systems, the virus can cause a rash across both sides of the body, a sign that it may be entering and attacking organs. And although of these worst-case scenarios would land a shingles patient in the hospital, and any are likely to and any are likely to leave a patient worse off for some time. For his oldest patients, especially, Shaw said, it is devastating. You have to give patients six months or more to figure out where they land. As many as half of those who get shingles at the age of 80 of 85 or over will end up with damaged nerves and chronic nerve pain. Studies show. To treat that pain, doctors prescribe a wide range of drugs that can cause sedation and dizziness. For seniors, especially some of those can raise the risk of, of falls and other mishaps that can be the undoing even of seniors who are still largely healthy, said Dr. David H. Canaday, an infectious disease physician at Case Western Reserve University Medical School. We see it in patients even who are not very elderly or frail, Canaday said. If something affect, afflicts you that makes you move less, become less active for a while, that can start a tremendous downward spiral. A case of shingles also raises the risk of stroke and heart attacks. In a study published in December, researchers from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston found that people who suffered a bout of shingles were 30% more likely than those who did not have a cardiovascular event that required a hospital treatment. A heightened risk persisted for at least 12 years after shingles had gone away. For some patients who recognize shingles quickly, a prompt course of antiviral drugs can shorten the infection's course and lessen its severity, 
but the prevention is a better bet. In 2017, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved a two-dose vaccine capable of preventing shingles in adults ages 50 and over for at least a decade. Large clinical trials found that Shingrix reduced the risk of shingles by 97% in people 50 and older and by 90% in those 70 and older. It has replaced an earlier but less effective vaccine of a different design, Zostavax, which has been available since 2006. While there is some evidence for a link between shingles and subsequent dementia, that relationship is still murky. Dr. Sharon E. Curhan, who led the research team linking shingles to cardiovascular events, has combed through years of data collected by the Nurses' Health Study and several large studies that built on it. Her team has explored whether cognitive decline is more common after a case of shingles. The findings are expected to be published soon. That was Feinstein Not Alone in Shingles Recovery by Melissa Healy from the California section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, May 5th, 2023. All right, we move on to uh, other things. This is from the city and state section of the Los Angeles Times for Saturday, May 6, 2023. UC students held Hitler birthday party by Noah Goldenberg. Goldberg. UC Santa Cruz condemned a group of its students who gathered on campus to celebrate Adolf Hitler's birthday last month, the school said. The unidentified students met on campus on April 20. Hitler's birthday and reportedly sang happy birthday to the Nazi leader and served cake adorned with hateful and horrific symbols, Akira Bradley Armstrong, Vice Chancellor for Student Affairs and Success at UC Santa Cruz, said in a statement. Just over a week later, on April 28, a UC Santa Cruz student found an anti-Semitic and anti-LGBTQIA flyer on their car windshield off campus, the school said. There were despicable and degrading claims about the groups on the flyer, Bradley Armstrong said. We unequivocally condemn these and all anti-Semitic and anti-LGBTQIA actions, Bradley Armstrong said. Bradley Armstrong said the actions violated the school's principles of community and had been referred to student conduct for follow-up and adjudication. The flyer was reported to officials with the city of Santa Cruz, according to the school. Though the incidents are upsetting, they are not surprising, said Donna Harrell, a third-year student who was the president of Social Life at, the, at UC Santa Cruz Hillel. It feels like the administration doesn't care about the Jewish students here, Harrell said. Besides public statements made by UC Santa Cruz, Harrell said she's not seen any effort to stop these incidents from occurring. Harrell said there are near-weekly reports of swastika graffiti on campus and that there have been insensitive comments from professors and teachers assistants comparing irrelevant things to the Holocaust. On March 5, UC Santa Cruz reported anti-black and anti-Semitic graffiti. Though the school did not describe what the graffiti said, it noted that the spray-painted images and words are horrific and have historically been used to inspire terror and to degrade and dehumanize black and Jewish people. The incident is being investigated by the UC Santa Cruz Police Department. According to a report released in March by the Anti-Defamation League, anti-Semitic incidents on U.S. college campuses have increased by 41% in the last year, with 219 incidents reported at more than 130 campuses in 2022. 
Stanford University is investigating an anti-Semitic incident from March when drawings of swastikas and Hitler were found outside a Jewish student's dorm room. That was UC students held Hitler birthday party by Noah Goldberg from the city and state section of the Los Angeles Times Saturday, May 6, 2023. Alright, on to some entertainment news. This first one is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, April 30th, 2023. A second bite of the apple. Can a marriage pass Adam Sternberg's Eden test by Jim Ruland? What's the worst relationship advice? Adam Sternberg laughed and considered the question. His seductive new domestic thriller, The Eden Test, explores the lengths to which a couple will go to save their marriage. Maybe that doesn't make him the best person to ask for marital advice, but it's something he's been thinking about since 2019. Of the One of the pieces of advice that gets people in trouble, said Sternberg, during a call from his apartment in Brooklyn, where he lives with his wife and two children, is this notion that if the relationship isn't working, all it needs is more effort. You can fix it. You just haven't figured out the way to do it yet. I think that's something that can trap people. Entrapment certainly applies to the protagonists of the Eden Test. On their second wedding anniversary, Craig and Daisy have decamped from their uh, Brooklyn apartment for a cabin in the woods in upstate New York. The property is owned by the Edenic Foundation, which offers its sanctuary in the wilderness for couples looking to reset their marriage. There's even an apple orchard full of forbidden fruit to ramp up the biblical implications. Over the course of seven days, the couple are presented with a new question every day, which they must answer together. There isn't any cell phone or internet service, so they can't phone a friend for assistance. They're stuck with each other, and as the questions become more difficult, the stakes get higher. Because this is an Adam Sternberg story, there's a twist. Several twists, actually. Sternberg is a novelist who delights in putting his characters in grim situations from which there is seemingly no escape. His first two novels, the Edgar-nominated Shovel Ready and its sequel, Near Enemy, are neo-noirs set in a dystopian New York. The Blinds, his previous novel, takes place in a purgatorial no-man's land deep in the heart of Texas inhabited by criminals who have had their memories scrubbed. They've been given a second chance, but with one critical caveat, they can never leave. I've always been drawn to stories that are in some way claustrophobic, Sternberg said. I love a locked room with mis locked room mystery, the Agatha Christie style with Who Done It, but my favorite play in college was No Exit. Although Sternberg came up with the concept for the Eden test prior to the pandemic, it feels like a novel that was written under lockdown. Craig and Daisy are thrust into a situation in which they have to deal with each other whether they like it or not. A scenario that will sound familiar to anyone who weathered the worst of COVID-19 in close quarters. The authors likened his quarantine experience to being in a lifeboat. We were all just clinging to this little rubber dinghy and it was flung up and down. We're going to make it through this together or we're going to go down together. But the key word is together. I feel like that is very present in the book. The Eden Test even echoes the flight of the affluent from cities to rural outposts whose inhabitants aren't always welcoming of the new arrivals, aka Sidiots. Like all couples, Daisy and Craig have baggage, both literally and figuratively. When we meet Craig, he's planning to leave his wife for another woman. His bags are already packed for a flight to Cabo San Lucas. 
Daisy also has secrets, but hers are much darker and more dangerous, and like most secrets, they refuse to stay in the past. Daisy is an actor adept at playing roles even for those closest to her. She has always kept Craig in the dark about her history, which gets more difficult to do as the Eden test unfolds. One of the things that evolved in the novel, as I was working on it, Sternberg said, is that it became a book about theatricality. The author's wife, May, uh, Julia May Jonas, is also a novelist, as well as a playwright. Her most recent play had a run in New York's Lincoln Center. But as Sternberg fleshed out Daisy's story, he drew on his own theater background. He grew up in Toronto and in the 90s was part of a sketch comedy group called Joke Boy. It was posed kids in the hall, he explained, and there was a lot of energy in Toronto around the idea that you could start a comedy group and be the new kids in the hall. Although Sternberg insists, I was a terrible actor, he did appear sporadically on Canadian television. After college, he wrote for various magazines in Canada until he was invited to apply for a position at a New York magazine. I was on the next plane, he said. Sternberg worked on and off New York and in New on on, on off for New York and the New York Times magazine for more than a decade. He was recently named a Times Opinion Culture Editor. Sternberg chose writing over performance, but Daisy is committed to her acting career. For reasons that are revealed in the novel, she doesn't see the spotlight which allows her to hone her craft. In the Eden Test, she's consistently imagining herself on the stage. It's all about the moments around the words, between them, the crackle of implied meaning, the faint and parry of unspoken intent. People call it acting, but isn't this just what we all do every day? Play a role? Be who we know someone needs us to be? Recite our expected lines, all while searching for some clue as to the other person's real meaning, their honest motivations? Through Daisy, Sternberg investigates the similarities between public performance and the kind we do for the scene partners in our own lives. If you're really good at embodying characters, what does that mean, he asks. If you're in a long-term relationship with someone, to what extent is that also about embodying a character or playing a role? If you think Sternberg is being hard on actors, writers fare much worse in the Eden test. To call Craig a struggling writer is a is being generous. Committed to at least the idea of being a novelist, he dreams up acceptance speeches for the awards he will someday receive, clings to a lifestyle, lifestyle fantasies conjured up by Hemingway and Henry Miller. But the only writing he does is for a marketing company to Brooklyn, in Brooklyn that texts he sends to social media influencers trying to recruit them to get paid to show up at events and prevent to pretend to like something like to pretend to like some new vodka. Did Sternberg project, project his own imposter syndrome onto Daisy's posier husband? Not exactly, though he admits to experimenting in his early New York years with a persona that was a combination of the person you hope to be, the person you wish you were, and the person you think the people around you want, uh, want you to be. It's part armor and part aspiration. The difference is that Sternberg has written and edited thousands of articles. Craig is the kind of person who doesn't want to do the work, Sternberg said. He doesn't want to do the work of, in his relationship. He doesn't want to do the work of being a writer. He just wants the spoils. 
what prompts the question which prompts the question is his relationship even worth saving this is the big question underlying the seven smaller ones he and daisy are asked in the isolated cabin can they resuscitate their marriage or should they let it die of course it's not that simple there are other actors on the stage who will have their way, have their say Sternberg skillfully reveals information so that at various points in the novel, the reader must reconsider whom they rooted, who they're rooting for and why. As the story's many twists expose Daisy and Craig for who they really are, they come to understand that once the worm turns, the forbidden fruit isn't quite so appealing. That was A Second Bite of the Apple by Jim Rulin from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, April 30, 2023. Rulin's new novel, Make It Stop, is out now. And we actually have this opinion article here from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, May 7th, 2023. Judy Bloom and Margaret are having a well-deserved moment by Robin Abkarian. Novelist Judy Bloom and his straightforward depictions of menstruation, masturbation, and teenage sexual desire came along a little too late for me. By the time her groundbreaking 1970 novel, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, became popular, I was in high school and thought her books were, little, were for little kids. My friends and I, after all, had already passed around a dog-eared copy of Jack and Suzanne's Valley of the Dolls in junior high. So we were beyond fretting about when our periods would start and our boobs would pop. We wanted to read about the fraught lives of Hollywood's pill-popping sex pots. Which is why it took me so long to read Bloom's seminal work. Two years ago, I read it with my then 11-year-old niece who lives with me. She was not interested in all the Our Changing Bodies books I kept throwing at her. Nope, she'd say, not gonna happen to me. Maybe a good novel would help pierce the veil of her denial? I'm not sure it did, but we did love the book, and we discovered to our delight that it delved into topics even deeper than the, physic than the uh, phys physiological changes of the adolescent female body. Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret was also, and maybe even mostly, a story about a, an 11-year-old girl caught between the two belief systems of her parents' families, Christianity and Judaism. It was about a girl trying to decide whether God really exists about her dismay upon learning that a mother's Christian parents dis disowned their daughter for marrying a Jew. She puzzles over whether she should choose one religion over the other. But if you aren't any religion, asks Margaret's friend, how are you going to know if you should join the Y or the Jewish Community Center? In her quest, Margaret attends temple with her grandmother, church services with friends, an unwittingly confession at a Catholic church, which she flees when she realizes she has nothing to tell the priest. It is not until the end of the book, when she sp uh, spies blood on her in her undies, that she has an epiphany. I know you're there, God. I know you wouldn't have missed this for anything. Thank you, God. Thanks an awful lot. Ah, the perfect rendered narcissism of youth. In a case of great timing, one week before the movie version of Margaret hit theaters, April 28, the documentary Judy Bloom Forever was released on Prime Video. This is why you have probably been hearing and reading so much about Bloom lately. Now, 85, she is well overdue for this kind of attention. After all, her professional trajectory perfectly recapulates her times. 
a 1960s housewife raising two kids in suburban New Jersey. She was married to an attorney who allowed her to write as long as dinner was on the table when he got home from work. When her first book made a splash, she says, other moms on her blog resented her. As her popularity grew, her books came under fire for their frank approach to adolescent and teen, and teen life, and her marriage crumbled. She wanted more, she kept, so she kept writing, kept selling books, which kept getting banned. She got, she's divorced, remarried, and divorced again before finding her soulmate. The documentary includes many clips of Bloom's interviews over the years, including a 1984 appearance on the political show Crossfire, during which the conservative pundit Pat Buchanan accused her of being obsessed with sex. Deanie, her 1973 novel in question, is about a teenage girl with scoliosis whose domineering mother wants her to be a model. At night, to relax and go to sleep, the stressed out Deanie touches her special place and feels much better. That's as explicit as Bloom gets. Why can't you write an interesting book for 10-year-olds without getting into the discussion about masturbation, Hector's Buchanan? The generally soft-spoken Bloom finally erupts, Are you hung up about masturbation? One scene in one book. I can only think that this kind of attack, this kind of attention, has helped make Bloom into one of the best-selling authors of all time. 90 million books sold and counting. As the young adult historian and author Gabriel Moss, one of many Bloom fans interviewed in the documentary Quips, come for the female masturbation, masturbation stay for the empowerment. In 2017, Yale University acquired 50 years worth of Bloom's writings and correspondence. At one point, at one time, she was receiving between 1,000 to 2,000 letters a month. She seems to have kept them all, and some are exerted in the documentary. Touchingly, Bloom developed decades-long relationships with her young correspondents, two of whom the documentary tracked down. One, Karen Chilstrom, says Bloom saved her life. She wrote to Bloom in 1982 when she was 12 to talk about the suicide of her 17-year-old brother. Later, she reveals to Bloom that her brother had molested her for seven years. I just needed to be able to tell another human being, look what happened to me, Chilstrom said. Judy was my last chance. Bloom's kindness is the emotional high point of the documentary. Remember, if you do get overwhelmed by, by your feelings, you can write about them, she wrote to Chilstrom. Whether it's in letters to me or your journal or whatever, keep getting those feelings out. Bloom has helped generations of kids get those feelings out. The repressed adults still trying to ban her novels should instead sit down, shut up, and actually read the books. That was Judy Bloom and Margaret are having a well-deserved moment by Robin Abkarian from the Opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, May 7, 2023. Okay, now we're going to do a couple of articles from the Warner Center News for May 4th, 2023, Volume 1, Number 8. And this first short one is from the Valley Entertainment section. It's called Valley JCC Hosts an Evening with John Paul Thornton, Author Unknown. Valley JCC will honor award-winning artist and art historian John Paul Thornton at a special in-person celebratory event on May 20, beginning at 7 p.m. This signature event will take place at the Rose Goldwater Community Center, 21710 Van Owen Street, Canoga Park at Westfield, Topanga. 
The evening's festivities will include a curated gallery of Thornton's artwork, his personalized video presentation, a silent auction, and an opportunity to bid on one of the artist's own paintings. There will be time to have a conversation with the artist and enjoy delicious catered decadent desserts, wine, and a professional coffee bar. The event fee is $65 per person after April 30, $75. A pre-event champagne toast to honor Thornton is an option and will begin at 6.30 p.m. for an additional $25 fee. Register for the May 20 event and evening with John Paul Thornton from the Artist Studio at valleyjcc.org celebration. That was Valley JCC host an evening with John Paul Thornton, author unknown from the Valley Entertainment section. And this next one is called is from the Health and Beauty section, and it's called Jesse Gabriel's Day of Service was a success. Author unknown. Friends, we are so grateful for the outpouring of generosity and enthusiasm for our second annual Valley Day of Service last Sunday. Over a thousand volunteers joined us for the Day of Service, where we packed over 3,500 outreach kits for individuals experiencing homelessness with Hope the Mission and LA Family Housing, wrote to over 3,000 letters to senior and healthcare workers with one generation, assembled over 100 amenity kits for domestic violence survivors with Haven Hills, picked up over 700 pounds of trash with overdue and volunteers cleaning communities, beautified the Mid-Valley YMCA, planted a new garden at the Valley at the West Valley Occupational Center, packed over 600 sandwiches with Project Rise and the West Valley Food Pantry for individuals experiencing food insecurity, collected over 500 pounds of food for the SOVA Food Pantry with Jewish Family Services of Los Angeles, and hosted a blood donation drive with Cedar Sinai. It was great to see so many friends and to partner with so many amazing people and organizations to serve our community. You can see more photos from our West Valley Day of Service at asmdc.org Gabriel. As always, please don't hesitate to be in touch if my team or I can be of any assistance. <clears throat> you can reach our Woodland Hills office at 818-346-4521. Assemblymember Jesse Gabriel. That was Jesse Gabriel's Day of Service was a Success by Jesse Gabriel from the Health and Beauty section of the Warner Center News for May 4th, 2023, Volume 21, Number 8. And now here's an article from Looper.com, and it's called How an Unscripted Line on the Big Bang Theory Changed Kevin Sussman's Role Forever by Dipayan Sengupta. Updated Janu uh, January 24, 2023. Over the course of its 12 seasons, the CBS sitcom The Big Bang Theory developed a deep roster of supporting characters to go alongside the main cast, which started out as five characters before adding two more in subsequent seasons. Notable reoccurring characters on the show include Sheldon's Jim Parsons' mother, Mary Cooper, Laurie Metcalf, and Leonard's John, Johnny Galecki's mother, Beverly Hofstadter, Christine Borensky, as well as Stephen Hawking and, and Will Wheaton. One of the series' biggest reoccurring characters, however, is Stuart Bloom. Played by Kevin Sussman, Stuart is the owner of the comic book store, uh, most often frequented by Sheldon, Leonard, Howard, Simon Helberg, and Raj Kunal Nayar. Stuart ends up befriending the group and is often depicted as depressed and unlucky in love. 
He dates both Penny, Kaylee Cuoco, and Amy, Mayim Bialik, over the show's run. Uh, but of course, neither relationship lasts. And Sussman revealed that an unscripted line he added in relation to his brief affair with Penny permanently changed his role on the show. Here's what he had to say. At a panel discussion at the 2021 Paris Manga uh, Sci-Fi show via RosterCon, Kevin Sussman spoke about his decision that Stewart should whisper I love you as Penny walks away in Season 3, Episode 7, The Guitarist Amplification, explaining that this improvised line changed the course of the whole character. Prior to this, Stewart had been written as an average person, but depression ended up being his defining trait, setting him apart from the show's other reoccurring characters. Season 12 sees Stewart finally find love with Denise Lauren Lapkus, a relationship that Sussman would have liked to explore further. Unfortunately, the Big Bang Theory came to an end after this season, so audiences didn't get to see much of the couple. Sussman believes that the writers were unaware that season 12 was going to be the show's last until it was too late and had con concluded that he wouldn't have been of the that he wouldn't have been averse to Big Bang Theory continuing. It turns out Kevin Sussman's role as Stewart was the culmination of several attempts by co-creators Chuck Lorre and Bill Pratty to get him on board. Sussman was actually the first choice to play main character Howard Wallowitz, with the part even having been written for him. Unfortunately, as Pratty noted, the Big Bang Theory, the definitive inside and inside star of the epic hit series, ABC wouldn't release Sussman from his existing contract for the show Ugly Betty, forcing CBS to drop Sussman and ultimately cast Simon Helberg as Howard instead. As, this, as he shared in the, at the 2021 Paris Manga Sci-Fi Show via RosterCon, Sussman was eventually approached by the team once again, this time for the role of Barry Kripke, who first appears in Season 2, Episode 12. Scheduling conflicts with a movie Sussman was working on meant this became the second role Sussman had to walk away from, with John Russ Bowie being cast instead. Eventually, Sussman was cast as Stewart, was initially intended to be just a one-episode character. However, the team decided to bring him back a few more times, and in part thanks to Sussman's improvised line, he ultimately appeared in a total of 84 episodes over the show's run. And that was how an unscripted line on the Big Bang Theory changed Kevin Sussman's role forever by Dipayan Sengupta, updated for January 24th, 2023, looper.com all right and now let's go to jewishjournal.com and we start off with this one israelis reflect on king charles's ties to jewish people ahead of possible visit british monarch's visit to israel would be a historic first from crystal jones the media line may 5th 2023 as British citizens and royal enthusiasts around the world prepare to celebrate the coronation of King Charles III, Israelis are reflecting on the king's connections to Israel and to the Jewish people. Some are hoping for an official visit after the coronation. Rabbi David Rosen, the American Jewish Com uh, Committee's Jerusalem-based International Director of Interreligious Affairs, told the media line of his admiration for Charles, but said that he doubted a royal visit would happen in the current Israeli political climate. 
Prince William came, which is an indication that they are inching forward, but I don't suppose under the present government that that would ha be likely to happen, he says. Prince William visited Israel in 2018, as a few other members of the royal family did throughout the years, but no sitting British monarch has officially visited Israel. Charles, then Prince, came to Israel in 1995 for Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin's funeral and in 2016 for President Shimon Peres's funeral. He visited again in 2020 following his son William's visit. Queen Elizabeth II, who died last year, never visited Israel, but her mother-in-law, Princess Alice of Battenberg, is buried at the Russian Orthodox Church of Mary Magdalene on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. During World War II, Alice saved a Jewish family in Greece from deportation to a death camp. She is recognized as one of the righteous among the nations, non-Jews who risked their lives during the Holocaust to save Jews by Yad Vashem, Israel's official Holocaust memorial. Charles, who was known to be amicable to those from all religions, broke with royal tradition by inviting non-Angelicans to participate in his coronation on, sa on Saturday. Israeli President Isaac Herzog and his wife Michael will be the, among the 2,200 attendees, including 100 heads of state from around the world. British religious figures such as Archbishop of Canterbury Justin Welby and Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis will also attend. As king, Charles is also the official head of the Church of England. Royals are required to follow Christian traditions, and the coronation has historically been a ceremony at which the region accepts the royal title in the name of the church. Non-Angelicans were therefore barred from attending the ceremony. Israelis who met Charles spoke fondly of his spirituality and his respect for those of all faiths. On the occasion I've met him, I've been very impressed with the conversation, Rosen said. I've been impressed with his spirituality, with the interest he takes in religious generally. He recalled Charles using the phrase created in the divine fabric to describe creation in the image of God. I'd never heard that phrase used in English before, but it seems to me to be an actual very good translation of one of the interpretations, Rosen said. He also recalled a speech that Charles once gave about religion driving people's visions for a better world and a better society. There was a particular emphasis upon the fact that religions should lead an environmental awareness campaign precisely because religious affirm, religions affirm that our world was created and therefore it is a manifestation of the divine, he said. Rosen said that after Charles took over as king, he asked whether he could invite Charles to Israel. Charles responded that he would love to, but that his advisors would probably tell him not to. Former ambassador of Israel to the UK, Mark Regev, similarly said that Israel may have to have a little patience as it waits for an official visit from Charles. He told the media line that as constitutional monarchs, British royals make decisions based on the advice they receive. That explains why Elizabeth never visited, despite the fact that she would have probably liked to do so, he said. Charles too probably wants to come, but it's fair to say it won't be in the near future, Regev said. He noted that Charles will probably visit some of the Commonwealth countries before coming to Israel. British nationals in Israel are getting ready to commemorate the coronation. The British-owned Kum Kum Tea House in Jerusalem has planned a series of events to celebrate. The Tea House prepared a special menu that includes similar treats to those eaten at coronation parties in England, such as scones, 
Pim's alcohol, alcoholic fruit cup, and Buck's fizz cocktails. On Thursday, dozens of people gathered at the tea house for a great British sing-along. Although the coronation is set to begin on Saturday morning with live television coverage, it will be screened at the tea house on Saturday night to allow observant Jews to watch. Owner Elisheva uh, Levy told the media line that about 90% of those registered are British nationals who enjoy anything royal. At the official coronation ceremony, Charles will be anointed with oil consecrated by two clergymen at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, Sepulchre in Jerusalem. From ancient kings to, to the present day, monarchs have been anointed with oil from the sacred place, Archbishop Justin Welby said in a statement. The Patriarch of Jerusalem, Theophilus, Theophilus uh, III, and the Angelican Archbishop in Jerusalem, Hosam Naum, consecrated the oil. Additional celebrations are planned throughout the region. For example, the English College, Dubai, asked its students and staff to dress up on Friday to celebrate the coronation, and the Ambassador International Academy, also in Dubai, invited its students and staff for a live viewing of the ceremony. Representatives from nearly every country in the world are expected to attend the coronation, including leaders from across the Middle East. Iran was one of the very few countries not to be invited. That was Israelis Reflect on King Charles' Ties to Jewish People Ahead of Possible Visit by Crystal Jones from the Media Line for May 5th, 2023. Friday, May 5th, 2023. Right, here is a follow-up article. All the Jewish details of King Charles's coronation from Shabbat accommodations to Jerusalem oil. Charles has invited Mervis to sleep in his home on Friday night, Clarence House, uh, located located a 15-minute walk from Westminster Abbey, the site of the coronation, so it can easily get to the event without using electricity, by Deborah Dannon and Gabe Friedman, Jewish Telegraphic Agency, May 5, 2023. At a reception of faith theaters at Buckingham Palace the day after Queen Elizabeth's death in September, King Charles pulled Britain's chief rabbi Ephraim Mervis aside for a word. The reception was pushed earlier in the day than originally planned to accommodate Mervis since it fell on a Friday. But it ran long and Shabbat was approaching. According to Rabbi Nikki Liss, head of the Highgate Synagogue, Charles asked Mervis what the rabbi was doing sticking around. Did he have to get didn't he have to get home by Shabbat? The protocol is that no one is allowed to leave the room before the king does, Mervis responded. Charles then promptly told him to get home. Both men are expected to bring that spirit of mutual respect to Charles's coronation day on Saturday, as the new king will include a range of faith leaders who have never before been featured in a royal ceremony of this magnitude. While much of the ceremony is still rooted in Christian rituals, representatives of Jewish, Muslim, Sikh, Buddhist, Hindu, Jain, J-A-I-N, Baha'i, and Zoroastrian, Tostrian communities will be incorporated into the proceedings. In fact, non-Jewish faith representatives will enter Westminster Abbey before Anglican clerks. Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, and Sikh members of the House of Lords will hand Charles's objects of the royal regalia. And in a notable cross-cultural mashup, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who is Hindu, will read a passage from St. Paul's letter to the Col Colossians, which includes language on the loving rule of Christ over all people and all things.
there was one large obstacle for observant Jewish participants and onlookers. The ceremony falls on Shabbat, but Charles has invited Mervis to sleep in his home on Friday night, Clarence House, locating, located a 15-minute walk from Westminster Abbey, the site of the coronation, so he can easily get to the event without using electricity. He will attend an early morning Shabbat service on his way. And when religious leaders recite a spoken greeting in unison uh, to Charles at the end of the ceremony, Mervis will not use a microphone. While many Orthodox interpretations of Jewish law hold that Jews should not enter churches, London's top rabbinical court ruled in the 1970s that chief rabbis may do so if their presence is requested by the monarch. Coronations have held at Westminster Abbey since 1066. The last time one was held on Shabbat was in 1902. Some Jews around London this week were not excited about the Shabbat timing, and like many other Britons, were still mourning Queen Elizabeth, Charles' mother, whose 70-year reign guided the kingdom through the second half of the 20th century and through the upheaval of the 21st. It's a shame that we can't fully participate in it, but we do need to acknowledge that we're such a minority and I don't expect them to take us into account, said Naomi Joseph, who was walking around Golders Green, a heavily Jewish neighborhood, on Tuesday. But it does make me feel less enthusiastic. It's like not being invited to a party. The Queen's funeral did feel more poignant than the coronation, said Karen Rickshappen, whose researchers who researches Judeo-English, a local dialect. People seem uh, more invested in it. We haven't a had a chance to see how Charles is going to reign, although I'm sure he's going to be great. But many Jewish congregations and families have for weeks been in the royal spirit, which engulfs England in an exciting, excited frenzy and creates a huge market of monarch-themed merchandise. Some congregations will close, close off the roads near their synagogues to have celebrations on the street. Others will hold ceremonies and services of their own to honor the king. But a week later, so their members can watch the coronation live on, on TV on the day. An office window shows coronation posters in Golders Green, a heavily Jewish neighborhood of London, May 2nd, 2023. Deborah Dannon. Musical celebrations and tribute is a reoccurring theme. United Synagogue, the Union of British Orthodox Synagogues, commissioned a new children's choir recording of Adon Olam, a prayer perhaps most recognizable as the conclusion of Shabbat services and dedicated it to the new king. The Shabbaton Choir, a group that frequently records for radio and television shows, created a new musical version of the Prayer for the Royal Family that's recited by British Jewish congregations every week. We've waited a long time for this coronation. It's exciting, said Sahar Dadam, an Israeli who runs a pita restaurant and has lived in London for 20 years. We've blessed the king with Shem Malchut, of God's name, it's a divine thing. He added, my, wife's fee my wife feels it more. She's English and goes to all the ceremonies. The kids are very excited too. The Jewish connection to the coronation ceremony will get literal too. The king and the soldiers uh, involved will wear at least some pieces stitched by Kashet and Partners, a Jewish family-owned tailoring company that is the main supplier for our Britain's armed forces. Baroness Marin of Lincoln, a former chief executive of the Board of Deputies of British Jews, will hand Charles the long imperial mantle robe, which was first made for George IV in 1821. 
we've got our day-to-day -day business going on too, but obviously the coronation takes priority over everything else, Cheryl Cachette told the London Jewish Chronicle. There is nothing more important than what is going on. It is very exciting and we realize how fortunate we are to be a part of history. Israeli President Isaac Herzog will be in attendance on Saturday too. A kosher caterer will provide food for him and Mervis. Ivan Blinstock, a longtime senior leader for multiple London Jewish communities, said the actual coronation ritual, which involves anointing the new king with oil consecrated in Jerusalem, was especially resonant for the Jewish community. The most significant part of the coronation is that shielded from public view, that is shielded from public view, is in fact biblical, he said noting that the ritual has its roots in the anointing of high priests in the ancient temple in Jerusalem. It's a source of great pride. And that was all the Jewish details of King Charles's coronation from Shabbat accommodations to Jerusalem oil by Deborah Dannon and Gabe Friedman, Jewish Telegraphic Agency, May for uh, Friday, May 5th, 2023. All right, and going back to the United States, here's this one. Harvard student's thesis alleges that Israelis face discrimination on campus. Student Sabrina Goldfisher told the journal that it was shocking for her to learn the amount of the brunt of anti-Semitism and anti-Israeli discrimination that the Israeli community on campus has to bear by Aaron Bandler, May 5, 2023. Harvard University student Sabrina Goldfisher who previously served as the president of the university's Hillel, has published a thesis paper alleging that Israelis have faced discrimination on campus. Goldfisher said in an April 22nd Times of Israel blog that the course of her investigation for her 110-page thesis, which examined the state of anti-Semitism on campus, revealed the most acute examples of discrimination involved Harvard's Israeli students. One student faced backlash for his involvement with, the, with Israel Trek, an Israeli student-led trip to Israel for Harvard students who do not identify as Jewish, Goldfisher wrote. He, tried, he reached out to organizers of the anti-Trek movement on campus, hoping to begin a dialogue and potentially incorporate their feedback. They refused to speak to him. The Harvard Crimson published an article about the outreach effort and quoted a member of the Palestinian Solidarity Committee, Harvard's primary pro-Palestinian advocacy group, who had suggested were they to meet with the Israeli student, that their physical safety might be jeopardized. He was shocked that the Harvard Crimson was willing to publish the, what felt like a personal attack. She also recounted instances in which an Israeli student was allegedly told, I can only imagine the war crimes you have committed, and another student who was barred from social organizations on campus due to being Israeli. Goldfisher told the journal, that it was shocking for her to learn the amount of brunt anti-Semitism and anti-Israel discrimination that the Israeli community on campus has to bear. The stuff that Israeli students go through at Harvard, it's outright discrimination that I don't think would be tolerated for any other groups on campus. She added that she, had, she has heard even more stories that I wish I could include since finishing her thesis. It's really disgusting what Israeli students face on campus, Goldfisher said, asking how it became this bad on campus and if it's happening on campuses elsewhere. Goldfisher took on the thesis after witnessing a spike in anti-Semitism on campus during the May 2021 conflict between Israel and Hamas, as well as the dispute over the East Jerusalem neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah. 
Goldfisher, who headed Harvard Hillel at the time, heard from Jewish students about how a lot of their peers were posting stuff on social media being intensely critical, sometimes into anti-Semitic territory of Israel, using tropes on social media. How can I be a student on Harvard campus when there's such hatred towards a cause and community that I really care about? Goldfisher recalled hearing from students at the time. Another factor that inspired Goldfisher, inspired Goldfisher to take on the thesis was out of concern for the fact that certain progressive spaces on campus reject Zionism. A lot of people see being a progressive Democrat and being a Zionist to be contradictory views, she said. I view them as very much mutually enforcing of each other. She added that, particularly in left-wing spaces, I felt some of that issue of being of bringing my full self and for me, my Zionism's a part of me, my full Jewish self. Having experienced right-wing anti-Semitism growing up in upstate New York, Goldfisher was interested in seeing how anti-Semitism manifests at college campuses. Starting with a small list of people she had cultivated from heading Harvard Hillel, Goldfisher conducted 45-minute interviews, both in person and over Zoom, with Jewish students at Harvard and at nearby campuses, as well as Hillel staff members. Goldfisher aimed to make sure the various sects of Jewish community that uh, were represented, but told the journal that the real value of my, my thesis lies in the anecdotal work. One of, these, one of the ways that Harvard can ameliorate the issues highlighted in the thesis is by understanding how diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts can be can better serve and include Jewish students on campus, Goldfish argued, recounting how in some of the students she interviewed, she would say that it was the first time they had ever spoken about uh, what happened to them on campus. This is serious stuff that impacted their mental, academic, social health, she said. I should not be the first person to hear about it. There should always be ways for them to feel like they can record this, have uh, someone to talk about it and understand it. That should be institutionally based within the college. A spokesperson for the university told the journal they couldn't comment on current students' work. That was Harvard Students' Thesis alleges that Israelis face discrimination on campus by Aaron Bandler, May 5th, 2023. All right, and now we've got this one here from the California section. This is called Santa Ana School Board Passes Anti-Israel Ethnic Studies Courses. The Santa Ana Unified School District Board of Education approved two ethnic studies courses that Jewish groups say contain anti-Israel bias by Aaron Bandler, May 4, 2023. The Santa Ana Unified School District Board of Education approved two ethnic studies courses that Jewish groups say contain anti-Israel bias. The course titled Ethnic Studies World Geography passed by a margin of three votes in favor and one abstination. The other History 10 Ethnic St uh, Studies World Histories course passed unanimously. Stand With Us alleged that the former course promotes bias and bigotry against Israel and the Jewish people, and the, la and the latter includes at least one book that promotes similar bias. Unit 2 of the geography course titled Colonialism Impact on Migration states, the concept of migration will be introduced and focused on the avenues through which colonial empires have maintained hegemonic influence over flows of migration within nations and internationally around the globe through genocides, tourism, wars, neocon 
neocolonialism, and settler colonialism. It then provides several links to supplemental material, one of which is a January 2020 Middle East Monitor op-ed that claim, claiming that the Israeli occupation of the West Bank has resulted a massive wave of ethnic cleansing that saw the forced removal of approximately 300,000 Palestinians from the newly conquered territory. The op-ed particularly focused on the Israeli military firing zones in the West Bank that have ethnically cleansed Palestinians and suffocated the Palestinian way of life, arguing that the sole purpose of these firing zones is to provide an Israeli legal justification to confiscate nearly a fifth of the West Bank for future colonial expansion. The op-ed cites the Palestinian villages of Masafar Yata in the South Hebron Hills is an example of this. Left unsaid in the op-ed is that there has been a legal dispute between the Palestinians and Israelis since 2000 on whether or not the Palestinian uh, were permanent residents when the area was declared a firing zone, which the Jewish Telegraphic Agency defined as a firearms training ground in the 1980s as Israeli law provides the military with the authority to declare an area a firing zone if residents are temporary. In May 2022, the Israeli High Court of Justice unanimously ruled in favor of the Israelis, although JTA noted that the United Nations, European Union, the Biden administration, and some members of Congress and some Jewish groups were urging the Israeli government not to pursue further demolitions and evictions regardless. The course then provides a list of essential questions about European colonialism and American hegemonic actions, as well as the following question about Israel. How has the settlement of Israelis after World War II changed the socio-economic status and sovereignty of Palestinians over time? On Unit 4 of the course titled, how Political Geography Marginalizes Minority Groups discusses how the distortion of arbitrary geographic borders by Western colonial powers has caused famines, political corruption, and internal and external strife for First Nations. The unit includes a critique of the plan by the United Nations to divide Palestine between Jewish and Palestinian areas and state-sanctioned violence against Palestinians, Rwandans, and Kurds will be placed in their proper context as consequences of European imperial nation-making. The unit also focuses on how the Israeli blockade of the Gaza Strip has affected Palestinians, providing a link to a video in the supplemental materials section on how it has adversely affected Palestinian fishermen in Gaza. Though the video acknowledges that the blockade is in response to, into ha response to Hamas, the terror group that rules Gaza, it doesn't mention that, according to the Washington Institute, Iran and Hezbollah have also smuggled weapons and rocket, manu rocket manufacturing material by sea, evading the Israeli blockade by dropping floatable items for Palestinian fishermen to pick up near the Gaza coast. The World Geography course outline accuses Israel of state-sanctioned violence against Palestinians, falsely fr uh, framing Israel's legitimate defense of its citizens against terrorism. Janie Finkelstein, a researcher for the Camera Education Institute, said in, the, to the, in a statement to the journal. The Santa Ana School Board approved the Ethnic Studies World Geography course outline with clear evidence of its anti-Israel slant. Canberra is alarmed by the upsurge in attempts to 
embed anti-Israel content into social studies courses. As for the world history course, the book referenced by Stand With Us is sociologist Michael Mann's 2004 book, The Dark Side of Democracy, Explaining Ethnic Cleansing, which will be used for teacher reference. Mann called Israel the main contemporary example of settler conquerors, arguing in the book that for half a century, Israelis have been cleansing the occupied territories of native Arabs most murderously in the late 1940s, renewed again in the Jewish land grabbing of the past few years. Israelis have maintained cleansed within have ma Israelis have mainly cleansed within their own occupied territories, devising the typical settler state, democracy for the settlers, lesser rights for the natives. The ethnic studies courses approved by SAUSD's board falsely portray Jews as colonizers in Israel, erasing 3,000 years of their history and connection to their ancestral homes, down with the CEO Roz Rothstein said in a statement. They cover the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in a deeply one-sided and inaccurate way, and completely ignore Jewish refugees who fled or expelled from, I from Arab states in Iran. This violates the spirit, if not the letter, of California regarding K-12 ethnic studies, as well as SAUSD policy about how to teach controversial issues. Simon Weisel Center Associate Dean and Director of Global Social Action Agenda Rabbi Abraham Cooper said in a statement, perhaps the SAUSD is unaware that this curriculum masks its anti-Jewish and extreme anti-Israel propaganda as historical facts. American Jews across the U.S. are the number one target of religious-based hate crimes, according to the FBI. We cannot have young, impressionable students indoctrinated to such biases, distortions, omissions, and lies about the Jewish people and the Jewish state of Israel. AMCHA Initiative Director Tammy Rosman Benjamin similarly said in a statement to the journal, it is really a shame that California school districts are rushing to approve biased and bigoted curricula that will only serve to, spre to spread further hate, division, and anti-Semitism among students throughout the state when it appears that the law mandating that such curricula be taught is, now, is not now and may never be operative. Unfortunately, school districts don't know this yet. They are being misled into thinking they must act quickly to abide by the law uh, and by groups like the Liberated Ethnic Studies Model Curriculum Coalition, whose anti-Zionist educator activists are ideologically and financially motivated to ensure their curriculum developed and professional training services are widely adopted. But in fact, school districts do not have to and should not move forward with costly, divisive, and bigoted ethnic studies programs unless and until the state legislature makes this bill operative. Rachel Learman, General Counsel and Vice Chair of the Louis, B. Louis D. Brandy Center for Human Rights Under Law, told the journal, We suspect that Santa Ana's curricula embraces the discredited anti-Semitic ideologies that were contained in the rejected first draft of California's Ethnic Studies Model Curriculum. We are currently investigating. If that turns out to be the case, then Santa Ana is taking a very ugly road and one which they may come to regret. The board did not respond to the journal's request for comment. That was Santa Ana School Board Passes Anti-Israel Ethnic Studies Courses by Aaron Bandler, May 4, for, uh, Thursday, May 4th, 2023. All right, now we move on to the columnist section. And this first one is called 
been Zion Netanyahu's legacy. Netanyahu's purpose was merely to expose what was, certainly at this time in history, left unexamined, the deeply personal contradictions of American Jewry, by Blake Flayton, for May 3, 2023. In the winter of 1960, Ben-Zion Netanyahu, a persona non grata in Israeli academia due to his far-right radical beliefs, stands for students and faculty at a college in upstate New York giving a lecture that may land him a position in the history department. Reuben Bloom, a prospective future colleague, the only Jew among the faculty therefore assigned to guide Netanyahu around campus, fidgets in his seat, feeling as though Netanyahu's eyes are piercing into him and into his way of life as an assimilated, but not entirely accepted, American Jew. This is what I think of America. Nothing, Bloom imagines Netanyahu saying. This is what I think of American Jews. Nothing. Your democracy, your inclusivity, your exceptionalism, nothing. Your chances of survival, not at all. He continues, your life here is rich in possessions, but poor in spirit, petty and forgettable, with your Frigidaire and Carla TVs, in front of which you can um, you can much your instant supper and laugh at a joke and a, and choke, realizing you have traded your birthright away for a bowl of plastic lentils. As it happens, Benzai Netanyahu did not really say any of this. His excerpt is take this excerpt is taken from Joshua Cohen's Pulitzer Prize winning 2021 book, The Netanyahu's, which recounts the fictional tale of Ben Zion Netanyahu visiting the fictional Corbin College in the winter of 1960, bringing along his three small children, Yoni, Bibi, and Ido, and his neurotic wife to crash the home of the Blooms, a Jewish family based roughly on that of the famous Jewish literary critic Harold Bloom, B-L-O-O-M, who did once host Ben Zion Netanyahu for the family name, before the family name became, uh, carried a powerful mystique. Most analysis of, of the Netanyahu's came on the heels of its release, which coincidentally was during a period uncharacteristically without Netanyahu when Naftali Bennett was Prime Minister of Israel. Yet now that the characters Cohen describes are once again gracing headlines, his book bears previously unexplored insights. The Netanyahu's clash immediately with the Blooms, B-L-U-M-S. When the Israelis arrive in New York, the three boys, two of which would become two of the most recognizable names in the modern Jewish world, trample around the house, knock over valuables, and Yoni, the oldest, seduces the Bloom's daughter, Judith. Ben Zion and his wife, Zila, are loud, argumentative, and presumptuous. The family carries none of the American niceties and sensibilities that the Blooms were born into. Not only this, but throughout their time together, Netanyahu insists on embarrassing Bloom by pointing out all the ways in which he is being humiliated. After the interview with the Corbin uh, faculty, Netanyahu grumbles to Bloom, the history department must decide upon a Jew so they uh, enlist another Jew for help, their only Jew, a Jew who was known to them, a Jew that they at least partially trust. He continues, the court Jew, the protected Jew, the useful Jew to keep your keep in your pocket as a consultant on your taxes, the elder of the Judenrat, who, when the Gestapo says, will need to kill 1,000 Jews, he's the one who takes which 1,000, only partially trusted by both sides. There are more subtle moments of note as well, such as when Netanyahu eyes Bloom's technolo Technicolor television and remarks, Shane, beautiful in Yiddish. 
the language of the diaspora of which Ben Zion and his fellow rev revisionist Zionists associated with the weak Jew. The Yiddish itself was a dig at me, but the words were oddly admiring, Blum thinks to himself. The first time I read the Net Yahoos upon its release, I understood the theme of the story to be the cleavage between distinct types of Jews, in this case nationalists, battle-ready Israeli Jews, and more cosmopolitan American Jews. Ben Zion Netanyahu was a disciple of Ze'ev Jabotinsky, known for his uncompromising vision of Jewish sovereignty. Jabotinsky and Netanyahu understood history as a continual siege against the Jewish people, staving off only by military, night, military might and attachment to a particular Jewish identity. In contrast, Harold Bloom, on whom Reuben Bloom's character is based, was a definitive product of all the fruits of Western civilization. His career spanned from critique of Shakespeare and Romanticism to Christianity and aestheticism, prime examples of universalist subjects. It seemed apparent that Cohen's book was a commentary on what happens when the worlds of Netanyahu's and Bloom's collide. Yet even Harold Bloom, as with many of the of even the most internationalist of Jews, still recognized a constant beneath varying layers of identity. When asked about his true beliefs, Bloom is quoted as saying, I am nothing if not Jewish. I really am a product of Yiddish culture. It was upon reading this, I realized that my original understanding of the Netanyahu's was incomplete. The conflict in the book was not between Netanyahu and Bloom, but rather between Bloom and himself. Long before Netanyahu arrives to torment him, Bloom is already deep into the abyss of Jewishness and its corresponding insecurities. He deeply contemplates the religious and cultural differences between his parents and in-laws he has to force a smile when asked to dress up as Santa Claus for the college Christmas party, and then his daughter Judith, who is insecure about the shape of her nose, devises a plan to fracture it so it will be in need of surgery, forcing Bloom to think of lies he will tell his co-workers about why his daughter is in the hospital. Then Zion Netanyahu didn't need to bring a storm of Jewish identity-related confusion to Corbin College, for, for it was already brewing. Netanyahu's purpose was merely to expose what was, certainly at this time in history, left unexamined, the deeply personal contradictions of American Jewry. Toward the end of the novel, after a night of chaos between the Blooms and the Netanyahu's, I won't spoil the book, but in the end the police are involved, Reuben's wife Edith, who has also withstood the worst of the Netanyahu anarchy, stands next to him in the snow, watching the Netanyahu car steer off. Meeting this horrible man and his horrible wife, she says, it made me realize I don't believe in anything anymore, and not just that, but I don't care. I have no beliefs, and I'm okay with that. I'm more, more than okay with it. I'm glad. I'm glad I'm getting older without convictions. This out-of-place line from Edith is not intended to provide readers with any closure about the theme or the story's subtext. Rather, it's written to discomfort us. Plenty of people, but especially Jewish people, are trained to recoil from such ignorance and detach from the world. Herein lies the true legacy of Ben Zion Netanyahu, apart from being the father to a just-as-polarizing son whose legacy is still yet to be determined. American Jews revel in a society that promises freedom, yet many still are aware of the dulling of their senses, the numbing agent of conformity. 
Many American Jews do not need a loudmouth Israeli to burst their bubble. The war rages on inside regardless. That was Ben Zion's Net Ben Zion Netanyahu's Legacy by Blake Flayton for Wednesday, May 3rd, 2023. And Blake Flayton is the new media director and columnist for the Jewish Journal. And we have this one. This is called The Crown Prince in Israel. Last month's historic and first-time visit of Crown Prince Reza Pahlavi to Israel meant so much to me and thousands of Iranian Jews worldwide. By Tabby Raphael for Wednesday, May 3rd, 2023. Being a pro-Israel advocate often means waiting for the other shoe to drop. For example, last week while walking on Wilshire Boulevard, I wanted to approach an Armenian man protesting outside the Turkish consulate in honor of Armenian Genocide Remembrance Day and to let him know that the 1915 genocide against 1.5 million Armenians resonated deeply with me as a Jew. But as soon as I approached the man, I noticed he was holding a poster that read Armenians for Palestine. I get it, partially. Unlike the United States, Israel hasn't officially recognized the Armenian Genocide, and it has good relations with Armenia's enemies, Turkey and Azerbaijan. But standing outside the Turkish consulate, I wasn't delusional for hoping that Armenian protesters focused, well, on Turkey rather than Palestine. So I didn't approach the men. Instead, I picked up the metaphoric shoe that had dropped and went on my way. Months ago, I had respect from members of a newly formed Iranian exile opposition group that has formed a coalition to help free Iran. This included a man named Hamed Esmailion, and then, during an anti-regime demonstration in Brussels in late February, an Israeli journalist claimed that when she asked Esmailion if he would give an interview to Israeli media, he responded he would not. George Harunian, an LA-based Iranian Jewish activist and community leader, knows the Israeli journalist, who has chosen to remain anonymous, and Harunian confirmed the exchange between her and Esmailian with me. Harunian is the co-founder of NoAntiSemitism.org, a website that educates Persian-language readers about anti-Semitism. In March, Harunian sent Esmailian an open letter on Twitter, at anti-Semitism 2, T-O, regarding his anti-Israel past. For example, in July 2018, Esmailian tweeted a quote by the late anti-Semitic Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat about the Middle East. In April 2015, Esmailian, who lives in exile in Canada, tweeted, tweeted, don't let Canada become a colony of Israel. A colony of Israel? Are there other colonies of Israel worldwide? If so, which one has the best hole in the shawarma stand? I'll reserve a flight tomorrow. Before reading Harunian's letter, I wanted to support Ismailian, and I sympathized with him. The man lost his wife and nine-year-old daughter who were killed by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps in January 2020 when they shot down a Ukrainian international airline flight in Tehran that was bound for Kiev, killing all 176 on board. There are few people in the world who hate the IRCG more than Ismailian, but I could support someone who wanted who wants to free Iran, but has an un but could I but how could I support someone who wants to free Iran but has an aversion to Israel? As usual, the other shoe dropped. Some days it seems as though I collect enough metaphoric shoes to render me a West LA cobbler. Call it anti Zionist intersectionality, or thinly veiled anti Semitism, or plain ignorance. Whatever it is, 
it sure is hard for me to get behind a cause if the person supporting it is unabashedly anti-Israel. That's why last month's historic and first-time visit of Crown Prince Reza Pahlavi, son of Iran's last secular leader, the Shah of Iran, who died in 1980, and his wife, Princess Yasmin, meant so much to me and thousands of Iranian Jews worldwide. Today was the best day of my life. My father, who lives in L.A., declared on the day Pahlavi and his wife arrived in Israel when I reminded my father that the best day of his life was when I was born and my sister's birthday and let's hope his wedding day, he responded, of course. That goes without saying, but I've waited decades for this. Carmel Melamed, an L.A.-based attorney, journalist, and Iranian Jewish activist, put it best. He told me that Pahlavi's visit to Israel, which is home to the largest Iranian Jewish diaspora in the world, estimated at over 200,000, was nothing short of healing for a community that escaped Iran and has had to watch its former home homeland terrorize Israeli, Israelis through proxies abroad. I believe that, is, that in Israel, Pahlavi and his wife, who live outside Washington, D.C., were treated better than they had ever been treated anywhere in the world simply because of what the man means to Iranian Jews in particular. But not everyone was enamored by his visit. In Haaretz, Israeli journalist Yossi Melman called Pahlavi's visit a cynical use of the Holocaust. The many photos of Pahlavi with Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu probably didn't win over many in Israel who loathe Bibi either. But I wonder how many Israeli journalists spoke with Jews of Iranian descent in Israel regarding this historic visit. For many of them, Pahlavi's presence was, in the words of Melamed, healing, especially given the painful reality of living in the Middle East where religious fanatics even sprout. Consider the contrast. Whereas the Iranian regime hosts Holocaust cartoon contests and its supreme leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei repeatedly denies the Holocaust on Twitter, Pahlavi and his wife arrived in Israel on Yom HaShoah and visited Yad Vashem. Whereas Iran has killed thousands of Israelis and Jews via terrorist proxies, Pahlavi met with and embraced Rabbi Leo D, whose wife and two daughters of his, whose wife and two two of his daughters were killed in a terrorist attack in April. Whereas the regime forces its Jewish community to protest against Israel on the annual Quids Day (QUDS), Pahlavi and his wife visited the Kotel Western Wall in Jerusalem, where they touched their foreheads to the warm ancient stones and undoubtedly prayed for a free Iran. For me, the most powerful moment of Pahlavi's visit occurred when he drew a connection to, the, to ancient Persia's King Cyrus the Great, a Zoroastrian who offered to liberate his Jewish subjects to return to Jerusalem and build the second temple. Pahlavi tweeted, 2,500 years ago, Cyrus the Great liberated the Jewish people from captivity and helped them rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. It is with profound awe that I visit the western wall of that temple and pray for the day when the good people of Iran and Israel can renew our historic friendship. Consider that the first order of business by the 1979 Iranian Islamic revolutionary leader Ayatollah Raoula Khomeini was to declare Israel an official enemy of Iran, the little Satan, and to make Zionism a capital offense. The first foreign dignitary, I use the term lightly, to visit Khomeini was Yasser Arafat. No wonder Israelis, especially Iranian Israelis, show Pahlavi with ro showered Pahlavi with rose petals on his visit. Yes, rose petals. During one event, as Pahlavi and Princess Yasby walked a red carpet, Israelis threw rose petals at them. 
Seemingly, everywhere they went, the Iranian uh, imperial national anthem pre-revolution was played. I broke down and sobbed when I watched that particular video of the royal couple. There's something about the imperial national anthem. It's just that, imperial. Listen to it on YouTube and you'll know what I mean. The other anthems, of which there have been several since the 1979 revolution, are so dark. Call me sentimental or naive or disqualified for being able to write for Haaretz, but that anthem pulls at my soul. And I suspect it has this effect on many others as well, even those who, like me, belong to a younger generation of Iranians who never lived during the Shah's reign. In the last 44 years since the revolution, Israeli American flags have been placed on the ground at the entrances of Iranian schools and universities so that they would be trampled. In Israel, Reza Pahlavi and his wife walked over rose petals. If that's not one of the most powerful contrasts between the Middle East is and what the Middle East could be, I don't know what is. That's all for now, folks. So long, shalom, and peace.